Morning. Morning. All right. Summer's winding down. Lots of people are gone. We have family camp going on at Sayokomo this weekend. So I don't know, there's probably 150 people there, and who knows, people on vacation. Jim is leading an entourage that includes several members of the mission committee and some women who lead a ministry called 146, focused on the needs of adoption and foster children, to the Dominican Republic. And we're looking into the possibility of partnering with a church there through Compassion International to focus our sponsorship of children in a place that's actually accessible to us, a place where we would have some opportunity to travel because it's not as far and hard to reach as some of the areas that we've sponsored in before. Uh, so be praying over that as, you, as it comes to mind this week that God would lead and guide us uh, in that effort. I have with me the great and wonderful Jake Moore. Whoop, 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 whoop. Yeah, uh, Jake and Aaron are here. They have been long-term missionaries in Ethiopia uh, that we've supported for, for quite some time. And uh, I'm going to let, let Jake tell you more about that. We've, we've come to the completion of our Matthew series. So this week and next, we'll be talking about the Great Commission mission that we have, part one and two. And I'll be having a conversation with Jake, kind of looking back at their, their time in Ethiopia. And then Jim will be having a conversation with his lovely wife, Erin, next week, kind of looking forward. Like, what, is it, what does it look like for missionaries who come back, and how do you process that? Uh, in the context, particularly, of reaching others for Jesus and in the great commission that he has given us. Uh, so with that, I just wanted to have a, a conversation with Jake this morning and let him uh, give us his perspective on a number of things. So tell us a story of how you went to Africa. Because I, I know that this is a struggle for a lot of us. Like if we completely abandon ourselves to God, he's going to send us somewhere. We'll be miserable and penniless and it'll be God forsaken. That's and, pretty much his plan and, you know, for all of us. Right? So that's, that's really God's good yeah. plan for all his people. He just wants to punish us yeah, all in so, some way, yeah. make us miserable. So we might as well just take it. And yeah, be in a place where there's lots of snakes and scorpions. Yeah. You know, that's his plan for all of us. Tell um, us what led you to Africa. Yeah, so how, how did that Ethiopia, happen? East Africa, how in the world did Aaron and I end up there? Mm -hmm. uh, my personal journey began actually uh, as a kid uh, in the sense that I was born in Oklahoma, but my dad was an active duty uh, Marine Corps officer. And so for the first 12 years of my life, we moved all over the place. We moved from California, Japan, Hawaii, Washington, D.C. And through those experiences as a young kid, I came to have a real appreciation for traveling, other cultures, had an interest in that. And coming back to Oklahoma, growing up, going to junior high and high school and prior, I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to somehow be involved with things, other cultures, uh, things overseas. And so I thought I would join the Marine Corps as well. I went to the other university in Oklahoma, unfortunately for so me, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so I went, I went to OU. Yeah, I, I have one fan here. Yeah. Hey, both Not my son-in-laws are OU graduates. All right, so, that, you know, that works. Houses that works. divided. Yeah. So anyway, uh, went to OU even with the plan. Uh, I had joined. I actually signed up with the Marine Corps, meeting with the officers, uh, the officer recruitment uh, guy, and had plans to go to officers candidate school. Actually, the summer after my freshman year, at the same time, got very involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, and it was through my that campus ministry that God got a hold of my heart and said hey, instead of seeing the world and carrying a gun for the Marine Corps, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing for my kingdom around the world. And so I actually had the opportunity to go on two different mission trips uh, to Russia with Campus Crusade for Christ while at OU. And it was through that my second mission trip that I felt God calling me to cross-cultural ministry. So as a single, I felt that calling on my life. 
Erin did as well. Uh, she grew up here in Stillwater, a part of the Sunnybrook Church. Um, Paul was her youth minister, and at the age of 13, she felt called to missions. And even with the intent of being a missionary, went out to Milligan College. It's a Christian liberal arts school out in East Tennessee. So as singles, we felt called, and then later as a married couple, felt like that was the direction God was leading us to. I worked for Campus Crusade for Christ, actually, for two years out at East Tennessee State University. It's a little university way out in the eastern corner of Tennessee. It's actually closer to the East Coast than it is to Memphis. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, Tennessee's a long state. Yeah, long state. So while at ETSU, uh, doing campus ministry, the organization that Aaron had gone on a mission trip with, Christian Missionary Fellowship International, contacted us, wondering if we were interested at all in a vision trip. They had our name kind of tagged as a potential couple that would be interested in doing ministry with them. So they put together this trip in January of 2003. Other young couples, a couple singles as well, all of us went for about two weeks to Ethiopia and looked at all the various ministry that was happening as well as opportunities that would were there in Ethiopia. They wanted us to consider doing campus ministry, but it was really the rural Bush ministry that was going on with the Gumus people that we felt God was calling us to. Um, And so we said, all right, this is what we're going to do. That was 2003. We were on the field by March of 2006 with our two-year-old and our two-month-old. Okay. Wow. (laughs) Stop and think about that, people. Uh, A two-year-old and a two-month-old, and they're moving to the bush in Ethiopia. We'll circle back to that and think about that a little bit more. How did you two meet, just briefly? Uh, Aaron and I, I'm from Pryor, like I said. Okay. Uh, some of y'all know Green Country. Yeah, woo. Yeah. Yeah, all right. I'm a Tulsa yeah. boy. Yeah, all right. So um, I was in Pryor. Aaron was here in Stillwater. For a number of years, there was this uh, Christian hard rock club in Bartlesville called The Warehouse. Yeah. And uh, me and my friends would go to concerts there and Aaron and Jake Lindsay, the Lindsay boys, I don't know if some of y'all remember them, Jake Lindsay would go there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they would go there, and so we met through punk rock concerts. Sweet. Uh, yeah. Punk rock, bringing yeah. missionaries together. Yeah, yeah, for God. bringing missionaries together around the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, I love that story. Yeah. So uh, our friends all started hanging out, and I was a freshman in college at OU, and Erin was a senior here, and we had a long-distance dating relationship while she was out uh, in Tennessee. It was love at first sight. For <laughs> me. For me. She actually said, I don't, I don't know about you, but I just kept pursuing her. She couldn't resist the magic after a while. Way to go, man. Yeah. Uh, she'll be up next week to respond. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. That. She can respond. <laughs> she can respond. That's so good. Well, it's so turning your, your attention to the time spent in Ethiopia. Tell me what you loved about it, because I'm sure there were things you loved about being there, the people, the ministry, the culture, whatever. So yeah. t- tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Uh, from a cultural standpoint, Ethiopians uh, are some of the most hospitable people in the world. Uh, it's one of the poorest countries in the world. But if you go to an Ethiopian's home, they are going to share whatever they have with you. So be that their coffee, be that their, their drink, be that their food, they're going to share with you. As some of you guys know, going to Aspen, you're going to get an Ethiopian blend of coffee. Ethiopia is actually considered the birthplace of coffee. 
Coffee's such a cherished thing to them that every afternoon, if you go to an Ethiopian's home around 1, 1.30, 2, time, time's very fluid there. Yes, yes. So uh, between 1 and 3 o'clock, you go to an Ethiopian's home, they're going to be drinking coffee, and they will instantly say, please, come in, sit down. They have their, their word for is innitata. It means let us drink together. And they're going to have you come in, and they're going to have coffee. If they don't have the coffee ready yet, they're set, they'll tell you, the coffee has arrived. Now, it might take an hour for them to prepare the coffee because they have to grind it and boil it and everything else, but they want you to be a part of sharing life together so desperately that they're gonna call, bring you in, have you drink coffee. Now, now, it's not coffee mugs like what we would get. They have little cups. Um, you know, if any of you all have been to Greece or Turkey, like uh, Turkish coffee drinks, it's a little bit bigger than a shot glass. And you're for sure going to get at least one seni, one little small cup of coffee, but that's expected for even your enemy. You're going to give them a cup of coffee, they say. Their saying goes. So first cup of coffee is for your enemy. The second cup of coffee is for your friend. The third cup of coffee is for family. And then the fourth cup of coffee you're going to get is the blessing cup. So if they give you one cup and say, hey, thanks for coming. see ya. That's not good. They don't like you. That's not good. Yeah. So just, just be aware of that. You get, if you get the fourth cup, you're pretty special in their eyes. The other thing is the food. Ethiopian food is intended to be eaten together. Every aspect of their food process, they, they have a large piece of bread, and they expect the family, friends, everyone to be a part of the food process. So going to cafes, even in the capital city, if I have something going on and I go sit by myself and there are a group of guys over here, they're like, hey, hey, you, mister, come over here. Because they don't want you to sit by themselves. It's all about shared life together. There's a saying awesome. that you can go fast alone, but we can go further together. And that's, that's a general mentality of all Ethiopians. They're going to share life together. And you might be a total stranger, but they're going to bring you in. Sounds oddly Christian to me. Yeah, it like sounds a, yeah. Christian for sure. Huh. So from a cultural standpoint, man, that's just something we absolutely love. You know, Coke bottles have been, they still have the old glass Coke bottles. They just started about three years ago having plastic bottles, disposable bottles. And it's because you're not supposed to be drinking Coke in your car driving down the road. You're supposed to be sharing a Coke with your friend. But there have been tons of times when Aaron and I, driving from the Capitol out to our station, have just desperately wished we could get a big old Route 44 Dr. Pepper <laughs> from Sonic. You know, where's Sonic when you need it? Uh, so anyway, that's a cultural thing yep. we love. From a church and ministry standpoint, and there's nothing like seeing folks going all out in worship uh, Coming to church on Sunday, on Wednesday nights, our prayer meetings we have on Saturdays, it's not a spectator sport. They're not passive it's about not it. not passive about it. It's full yeah. participation, sweating, going all out in their worship of their King, Jesus Christ. Um, it's something to be admired. It's something that we've learned from. And it even kind of bleeds into how they give they're very poor people, so money is something that they, they struggle with giving over, just like all of us do. Where, you know, what's going to happen with this money once I give it to the church is always the big question. But when you see things click, giving to God because he's given so much to me, the coolest thing Aaron and I have been able to see is them giving their food. 
their grain. They're farmers, they're agrarian folks. So they'll bring these big sacks of grain, 250 pound sack of grain, and give that as their offering to the church. They're literally saying, as a step of faith, God, I don't know where my food is going to come from, but I know that you can do something with this. Each Gumu's person's home outside, they have like, it'd be the equivalent of a silo. It's this little mud thing outside. And they, once they have it filled up for, the, for uh, the harvesting time, they know that's enough food when I get to the bottom for the year. They've measured it out over the centuries. They've figured this out. They take that 250 pounds of grain out of that thing knowing that I'm taking this out. This is my offering to God and that's food for the year that's gone for my kids. Or they'll bring chickens, they'll bring goats. And so that, that dynamic of giving all of themselves, once they commit to Christ, they're giving all of them the, themselves and not holding anything back is, has been a huge thing that we love to see. And uh, Aaron and I often find ourselves bawling our eyes out whenever we see somebody carrying a giant sack of grain up or walking in with a, a chicken in their hands. We know that. I mean, those this things represent wrong. wealth in those that, kinds of it, communities. Exactly. And so they're That's giving of their, their wealth. savings account. Yeah, That's, they're giving of their wealth. Yeah, exactly. And often you hear in very poor cultures, they are the most generous. Yes. Yeah, they, for they, sure. They give out of what they, they yeah, don't Yeah, they have. give out of what they have. They don't hold anything back. What was the most challenging thing about reaching the Gumus people, ministering and carrying out ministry in a, a culture that's so unlike ours? Well, um, definitely for, for us, coming into a cross-cultural uh, situation is trying to figure out, when, when it comes to, to sharing our faith, how much of what I'm sharing is Jake Moore American stuff that I'm trying to put on them, and how much of this is biblically-based Faith in Christ. Transcendent truth. Yeah, that, transcendent yeah, that truth rises above culture. that rises above culture, exactly. Um, and that's, that's always a constant struggle in the 11 years that we were doing ministry of trying to figure out that balance. Like a, a small example would just be the average American church, we expect you to have a facility. There's gonna be a building of some sort. Even these new church plants that you see in different towns, even here in Stillwater, that meet in elementary schools or old supermarkets, they're looking for a place to meet, to gather. And that's a great practice, but it's actually not necessarily something that has to be found. Uh, you don't necessarily see it in the New Testament. They met in homes in the New Testament, or even Paul in Acts 17, he was preaching and teaching in the area of Pegasus, just an open air market area. And so we tried to have that same mentality with the Gumus and started a lot of our outreach efforts under trees, just meeting in the shade, and, and then gathering people together and sharing in that way. So I, I remember being in Rwanda about five years ago and this giant tree in this village that was in such a remote place and they said, this, this is where we have church. Yeah. So exactly. I've actually seen it and I just, yeah. I just couldn't even fathom it. Yeah, <laughs> we, so we don't necessarily think of sitting on the ground uh, for church, but no. taking, those, so taking kind of those blinders off, those cultural blinders off and recognizing that those are the important things. What are the essentials to our faith? would be uh, definitely one dynamic uh, that, to the challenges of living there. The other would be we had a clinic uh, out where we were at, and the Ethiopian government, though it says it's a federal democracy, is very controlling. Um, any of you all that know families that have adopted or attempted to adopt children from Ethiopia yeah. have heard of some of the struggles that those families have had, and that trickles down to all the issues and any dealings that you have with the Ethiopian government. So that probably would have been one of our other major challenges from just life and ministry there, running that clinic and keeping the government happy 
the people loved us in sure. the community, saving lives and giving us an open door to share the gospel with folks because you saved their kid's life was a huge opportunity. But the government always tried to shut that down and close that off. So you've 11 years and yeah. now you're here. Yeah. Uh, how, did, how did God bring that to a close? What led you to come back to the United States? And praise the Lord, you're in Stillwater. Which yeah, we're really, so we've, we're very we've landed in Stillwater. Uh, I've been here for just a little over two weeks now uh, with our son, Aiden. Aiden, for the last two years, has been in boarding school at a great school in Kenya called Rift Valley Academy. Um, some of you all may be familiar with that school. So Aiden has been at boarding school, and we have two other kiddos, Gwyneth and Shay, uh, two beautiful girls, and looking ahead for their education, but particularly looking at where our churches have gotten to in the last seven years, we felt like looking at the giving, the way that they're teaching, that they're taking on the ownership piece themselves for moving the church forward. Mm -hmm. They no longer needed mission, the missionary presence, the, the daily missionary presence. They needed to start taking a lot more of the control on their own. And the best way to do that would be for us to step back. Um, so that's what we did in that sense from a ministry standpoint. Our clinic project, uh, we do these on kind of con a contract basis with the government as an NGO development agency. And that contract had come up in December and a lot of the requirements that they were looking for, asking for, we no longer could meet. Um, it just was a standard that they weren't even holding their own clinics to. And so we felt like from the outreach standpoint with the clinic, that time had ended as well. And then for our three kids and just where our family was at, it was time for a transition. It's something that we had been wrestling with for the last three years, actually, since our last furlough and felt like summer 2017, this summer was going to be a time for us to transition. So we've, we've moved back to the United States, and we're here in Stillwater. Um, but this fall, we'll, we'll be doing quite a bit of traveling because we have supporters, donors here in the Oklahoma area, Colorado, Tennessee, Ohio, and we'll be reporting and sharing with them about what God's been doing in Ethiopia among the Gumus. Man, we couldn't be in Ethiopia. We couldn't have spent the last 11 years doing ministry there if we didn't have supporters like Sunnybrook, like the Sunnybrook family praying for us, sending us emails and letters and care packages and financially helping us be there to do the ministry that is, we really consider a branch of this church and of the work that you guys are doing here. So thank you for your support for our family over the years. And we're going to continue to give, give you opportunities to ask us and connect with you guys about what we've been doing. And that we're hoping to do that with all of our other churches through the fall. After that, we're kind of trusting that God will open that up and clear that up for us. I mean, obviously, if you're following the Lord, you're going to be here. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Right? What else? What other possibility could exist? Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I love the way you took my question first service that I'm about to ask you uh -huh. and kind of morphed it. So I'll just pose it the way I posed it, Okay. which is, what do you think God, uh, we need to hear about God from mm -hmm. your perspective? Yeah. Yeah. Steve had asked me about this and I, I actually thought, I, I'm not sure if I could speak into this situation or what God needs to tell you, but I actually thought, what would my friend Abuma, an Agumu's evangelist, what would he see, what would he say to you all as a challenge 
uh, just coming into this context, into this context that he doesn't know, what could he say and share with you guys? And I would say probably the first thing, or one of the main things Abba would focus on is prayer. And when Gumu's people in worship, as I said, it's a, it's a full buy-in. So when it comes to prayer, they will have all-night prayer vigils. And you're thinking, okay, people are dozing probably <laughs> from the three to four time frame in the a.m. No, they're still praying. And they're, they're all out. They're totally bought into prayer. And bearing one another's burdens in prayer and bringing that to Christ knowing that he's going to answer those prayers. And so my friend Abama, I think he would challenge us as American believers and say, when you, when you see one another in the foyer, when you see one another in the community and you hear Steve's got an issue, he's got something he's struggling with with his kids or his wife is sick, instead of saying, hey man, I'll, I'll be praying for you and then dash, dash, <laughs> head on out, out. actually stop and pray for that fellow believer right then. Why don't we do that? Why are we so hesitant to pray for one another? Even in the foyer of our church, I mean, that's a pretty safe place. But take it to Aspen. You know, you're hanging out in Aspen. You're talking about things, hard things. Why do we hesitate to pray for one another even in those places? Because Abama, my friend, and the other Gumus believers, they had to make a choice at some point to start looking different than the surrounding culture. And praying for one another, maybe even in public places, is one way where we can start showing that we're different and give us even an opportunity to share why we believe and live the way that we do. Coworkers, if you know a fellow believer at your, the place, your place of employment, Maybe taking a part of the lunch hour. I'm not talking all hour or the whole hour. Maybe a portion of the lunch hour to pray for one another or to pray for someone uh, there where you're employed. Uh, there's just some powerful ways that I think that we can be encouraging and lifting one another up through prayer. And I think Abama would say that as a believer. And then the other one that I had mentioned um, is that traditional African uh, folks uh, are very aware of the spirit world. Now, we, we hear that here in the West, here in the United Things, and, and, and think, uh, you know, that's kind of voodoo, voodoo, voodoo superstitious yeah. talk. But if you look at Ephesians 6, Paul says very clearly that there are other forces at work in the world. And Abuma would say, oh, why do you guys not recognize that? Sure, we can see, yeah, ISIS going on, transgender issues, politics, all of those types of things. We see that as evil, but in our own daily lives, we don't recognize that there are other spirits and forces at work. The spirit of busyness, the spirit of materialism, that there are things that are jading us, blocking us from understanding fully who God is. And I think Abba would say, we need to be praying against those things in our own lives. Have you read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's, that's he, a, he exposes very, the kinds of things you're talking about exactly. that we tend to be blind to. Yeah. And I think uh, the compromises that we make in our own culture uh, just because we become dull of right. perceiving it. And so hearing from a different culture yeah. really does help unmask yeah. uh, and help us to see what we need to be seeing Absolutely. in our own lives and in our own culture. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, speaking of prayer, I want to pray for you. I appreciate you, you being up here. Um, the Bible tells us to honor those among us that have done what they have done. And so I want to honor him with prayer. And uh, if you don't know Jake and Aaron, 
you need to get to know them. I know everybody that does know them absolutely loves them. We appreciate you guys. Thank you. We're glad you're here. Father, I'm so grateful for time that we've had um, with uh, Jake and Aaron and their family that they're here now. I pray that we would have a heart to love them well. I'm confident that the fellowship here will do that. We're very grateful for what you've done over the last 11 years through them in Ethiopia, the planting of six churches, uh, so many people having come to faith, leadership being developed, uh, those churches able to, to rise up and function on their own without a daily missionary presence. Uh, God, you've brought yourself glory through those efforts, and we're very grateful that we've been a part of that. Uh, so, Father, I pray you give them wisdom going forward and show them the way now that they're here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Here, I'll just set it down. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't you grateful to be a part of a church that supports people like Jake and Aaron? I mean, it's good. And we have other missionaries around the world. We have the, the Priors in Papua New Guinea and the Greers in Japan and the Ganyos in Ghana. We have missionaries here in Stillwater that reach out to international communities, to college students, and uh, other organizations that we support kind of in this region of the country uh, that are doing great work. So it's, it's at home, it's abroad, and uh, we, are, we are a fellowship that really has a heart for those things. Uh, and hey, if you want to know more about it, talk to me. I, I lead the mission committee at this point and uh, kind, of, kind of aware of what's, what's going on. Just got back from 12 days in Poland. I'd love to tell you more about that too. Uh, but hey, we're grateful that they're a part of our church as well. And I really am praying that God will enable them to stay here among us uh, because we love them so much. You know, I don't know what you think, but I, I hear uh, Jake and Aaron talk about picking up and moving with a two-year-old and a two-month-old. And part of me just goes, that, that's extraordinary, right? Is it not extraordinary? Like something about that is just, that's kind of crazy even. Uh, and I marvel, I mean, at least a little bit. And I think them, I just shake my head and go, man, I could, I could never do that. I could, I could never do that. Do any of you feel the same way? Like you look at it and you just go, nah, I don't think I could do that. It just looks hard. It looks crazy. It looks out there. I mean, I remember as a new believer being afraid that if I abandoned everything to God, that he would send me to some God-forsaken place where I would be miserable and penniless and just unhappy, right? Like you said, that's, that's God's plan for everybody, right? And it was just a completely misguided understanding of how good our God is and where he would lead me if I would completely let go. But I have held back part of my heart from him. And I'm concerned for all of us that, that we have parts of our lives and hearts that we guard from him, as if we're going to be better at managing it than the creator of the universe. We kind of fool ourselves in these ways. Some of us need to be like Jake and Aaron in the specifics of what they did. Some of us will be called to go, to leave the community of familiarity that we live in and to go form a new community somewhere else built around faith in Jesus. Some of us. And some of our children will be called to do that. We have wonderful examples to look at, but most of us won't be asked to move to a foreign country. We, we see in the New Testament that God didn't tell an entire church, uh, hey, all you guys, you 1,000 or 1,200 people at Sunnybrook need to pick up and move to Poland. That's, that's not how God works. Not even most of us. Not even a lot of us. But, but some of us will need to do that. But we all have a part in raising up and sending, and supporting, and partnering, and then receiving back those who are called to go somewhere else to further the kingdom. We have a mission to continue that work here, and to reach out for God. And one of the things that uh, 
being in Poland showed me was people who have a passion for their own country and their own community. And sometimes I struggle with that. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I get very complacent about reaching the unreached in Stillwater. I just get comfortable. I don't want to look weird, so I don't pray at Aspen Coffee, right? And I'm more concerned about what people think than about being obedient to God. That's, that's my struggle. Uh, now listen, there are some ways in which all of us need to have things in common with people like Jake and Aaron, right? We're not all going to be called to go to a foreign country. But they're not, they wouldn't tell you, oh, we're super Christians, you know, we're, we're a superior class of Christians, right? Uh, they, if you ask them, they would just say, we're Christian, right? We just, we just did what God asked of us. We did, he put this burden on our heart and we responded. There was nothing extraordinary about it from that perspective, and that is something that we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we all share the responsibility to have a kingdom mindset so that when God calls us, uh, we respond, that we're willing to do what he's asked. This is the definition of loving God according to Jesus. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. So love and obedience are made equal according to Jesus. So if you strip away the particulars and the what they did, and you try to ask, like, why did they do it? Then we can peel that onion back a little bit and begin to better understand how to examine our own hearts and lives, what to look for, to, to know whether or not we're really following in obedience the way Jesus taught that we should. Jesus will lead us by his spirit as we follow him. He promised that he would do that, lead us into all truth, bring us comfort, give us wisdom, those are promises we can count on. And every one of us has something that God has for us to do. It says it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, right? It's a very familiar passage. If you've been in church for very long, you've heard this a lot. We are his workmanship, like God has created us. And we are created in Christ Jesus for good works that he had prepared beforehand. God has had something in mind for all of us that we should, the Bible, the ESV says we should walk in them. It should just be our normal way of living every day that as we go, we see what God is doing around us and we enter in and we respond and we do the work that he has called us to do. So how do we recognize, how do we recognize these good works, right? How do we hear and respond to the spirit? How do we keep a kingdom mindset that keeps us open to his call? I, I struggle to be fully available, right? I work at a church, right? I've been working here 11 years and yet I still struggle to lay bare my life and let God have everything, anything and everything that he would ask of me. I still have fear. I still have insecurities. I struggle to be fully available for what he would ask. But Jesus taught in Matthew 6 something that I think gives us insight into what guides and directs our lives. Now, this is part of a larger passage where he's giving lots and lots of instructions about how, as his followers, we should live. And they culminate in saying, the wise man built a house on the rock, but the foolish man built on sand. And the, the person that built on sand was destroyed when the storm came. But the person who built on the strong foundation survived. The storm is representative of God's judgment. So he's saying in all these things, and this passage I'm about to read to you is part of that, that to hear my words and do them is to build on a solid foundation that will survive in the day of judgment. Here's what it says. Do not lay up, do not accumulate, don't store for yourselves treasures 
on earth. This verse makes me really nervous because I, I think I, I'm trying to do that. Like our culture tells us that's what you do. Like the question the financial planners want to ask you is, how much money do you have to have to maintain your current lifestyle when you're not, right? I mean, we've all been posed the question, right? The culture tells us, lay up for yourselves treasures on earth so that you'll be comfortable and you won't have to rely on anyone else. I mean, Christian evangelical culture would tell you that. But Jesus seems to be saying something different here. This makes me so nervous because I see in myself uh, an unwillingness to actually believe this. So don't do this where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I mean, these are temporary things. They're vulnerable to being depleted and stolen and destroyed. But Jesus said, instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In the Jewish tradition, these would be acts of love. They would be acts of sacrificial giving and service to God's people where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. These things are eternal. They're invulnerable. They will last forever. And then he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying uh, that it's wrong to have an IRA. That's not what Jesus is teaching. That, it, that it's wrong to be wise with money. That's not wrong. What Jesus is saying is if you set your heart on that, if you're trusting in that and your self-sufficiency, if your affections are set on building your kingdom so you don't need anybody else, that stuff's going to all be destroyed. You've invested in something that has no eternal value. You can still be a believer and have those things, but it's very difficult not to set your heart on the treasure that you have to want to insure it and protect it and maintain it and paint it, and, right? We all, we all get sucked into protecting and guarding those things instead of holding it with an open hand and making it available to God and laying it at his feet. I want to be a wise builder. I really do. But my impulse is to try to protect myself. Our, our lives are all aimed at something, we're, we're all pointed in a direction somehow. And, and the question is, what is it that's pointing us in a direction? Like, is it our thoughts? Is it how we think about things? It's like the scope on a rifle, right? You, you look at a target and you direct the bullet to the target. There are things operating in our lives that have that same sort of direction-finding function. And it's not what you might think. It's our passions and our affections and our loves that direct our lives at the objects of our desire. That's what does it. It's like a rudder on a ship. And we're even willing to abandon what we know to be true for the sake of pursuing our preferences and pursuing our desires because they think they'll provide the good life. We all want the good life. And it's not, even, it's not wrong to want the good life. We all want to be a part of human flourishing. It's just that the world has a different idea of what that is than God does. He built in us a desire to flourish. But we settle for worldly things, thinking that that's the answer. We just have a pale vision of God, his kingdom, and his promises. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Brilliant writer, he said this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum 
because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. We settle for these worldly things because we have an inadequate vision of what God has promised. We hold back pieces of our lives and our hearts from God and too frequently we set our hearts and hopes on the wrong things. We misdirect our affections. It's the heart, it's not so much the head that actually directs our lives. It's the things that we care deeply about more than what we know. In many ways, we love the world more than God's kingdom. So like Narcissus, we have seen our reflection, we've fallen in love with it, and we live paralyzed by it. So how do we recognize what's going on? I mean, we know the right answers. We know the right answers. Like if you came to me and said, here's a worldly value and here's a biblical value, I know how to choose the biblical value as the right answer, right? I know the Bible well enough to know, well, that's the right answer. But then if I look at my life and how I make decisions and the way I talk and what I hold dear, like, does it match up? So many times it, it doesn't. I just struggle with that. The culture around us would say we ought to ensure our comfort by building our kingdom. The Bible would say we should trust God for provision, right? The, the culture would say you should be a self-sufficient accumulator of wealth and try to act Christian most of the time. The Bible would say you should be a generous follower of Jesus who puts everything at his feet while acting wisely with the material wealth he's entrusted us to steward. You get the difference? The difference isn't whether or not you actually accumulate any wealth. The difference is what is the posture of your heart towards that and towards God? Are you holding it with an open hand and saying, Lord, it actually belongs to you. Everything I have, everything I am is yours. Or are you holding it close to your chest to protect your future that you may or may not even have? The culture would say, hey, it's awesome to develop athletic prowess in your children because they might play Division I, whatever, and get a scholarship. Or who knows, they might go pro and then they'll get rich and then they can take care of you when you get old, right? And uh, versus training them in righteousness, which is the biblical thing that we should do for our children, right? The culture would say, hey, develop your children into athletes who, who act like Christians. This would even be church culture, right? They should act like Christians. Why not? And the Bible would say you should develop devoted followers of Jesus who, hey, if they happen to be athletic, if they happen to play division, they have to be pro. Awesome. Like the, the Bible doesn't seem to care how you make your living as long as it's legal, ethical, and moral. But the Bible does care deeply about how we disciple our children and how we disciple each other. And following Jesus in a devoted way is the thing the Bible teaches. The difference can look really, really subtle to the observer, right? But we can fool ourselves into justifying worldly living by telling ourselves this, hey, we're good people. And we don't forget about God, right? We don't forget about him. We just don't put him in his kingdom in his ways first, although we don't really like to say that. Right? We understand the sacrifice of getting a good education. Anybody in here got a college degree? I have an electrical engineering degree. I had no high school math beyond geometry. Let me tell you, it was hard, stinking work. I spent, probably my, my wife was, was like, just leave the door open when you're studying because she felt shut out because I would have to study four or five, six hours a day to try to get through that thing. I mean, it was, it was hard work. It was a big sacrifice. 
You know, we know what that looks like. We know what it looks like to build a successful football program, don't we? Millions of dollars, great big fancy stadium, incredible facilities, you know, coaches that are willing to absolutely spend their lives building the program, recruiting, you know, athletes that will come and pay the price and sacrifice. It's a huge collective effort and sacrifice to do something like that. And we're all for it, man, right? I mean, and it's not, there's nothing wrong with it. So hear me, I'm not criticizing these things. But what I am saying is, when it comes to being a believer and growing in Christ, why do we think it, it, it takes so much less? Like we can just skate. We can just kind of show up at church, go to Sunday school, and not, you know, not kill anybody, not sin, and it's all good. Jesus calls us to so much more. And we fail to respond to it because we don't hold up his promises. I'm gonna talk about that here in a second. So what's the antidote, right? We're not just static containers into which we put facts. We don't just stuff facts, Bible facts into our head. That's not enough to motivate us to actually change the direction of our lives. It doesn't work that way. Our hearts have to be set on the present kingdom and on the promise of eternity. We need to be captivated by the promise of a holiday at the sea that God has given us. There's so much more. He's promised us joy through his presence. Like, haven't you met someone before that you look at and just go, there is, there's a joy in you that is so deep and so abiding? Like, what is that? Like, I, I'm, I'm attracted to joyful people. And I don't mean outgoing personalities. I don't mean happy-go-lucky. I mean people that have a deep joy in the Spirit that's given by the presence of the Spirit of God. Those kind of people are very attractive to me. God's promised us peace, freedom from internal conflict. Uh, we're at peace with Him. We're at peace within ourselves, and to the extent that it depends on us, we can be at peace with one another. He's promised wisdom, an understanding of how to deal with complicated and difficult and uncertain circumstances. He's promised community and relationships that go way beyond our immediate families. And listen, imagine what it'll be like at the resurrection. There'll be no more sin. I love thinking about this. I, I, love, I love people, my wife knows this, and we will have no insecurity We'll have no pride, we'll have no lust, we'll have no baggage, we'll have no damage. Uh, it's gonna be pure. No sin involved in our interpersonal relationships. Can you imagine being able to love one another in a world without sin? I mean, literally, I can't imagine it because my sin rises up and prevents me from fully going there. But that's part of the promise that God has given us. We have so much to live for. It's so wonderful and awesome what God has promised. This holiday at sea is almost beyond imagination. We have something very, very good uh, that we have in store from God. He's promised us an abundant life. He's promised us provision. And yet we, we just can't seem to get over our anxiousness about the future and whether or not God will provide. He knows every hair on your head except for Alan, maybe. No more hairs. Sorry, brother. I don't know if that scripture applies, but he knows every follicle on your head. How about that? I think by extension, that's probably theologically sound. <laughs> don't worry. Mine's, I'm right behind you, brother. It's getting thin. But the point is, he knows us intimately, right? He knows every little thing about us, and he loves us, and he cares, and he's going to provide. But why we get anxious and try to rely on ourselves, I, I don't understand. He's promised freedom. He said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, what are we being set free from? You ever thought about that? 
Freedom from sin, from the domination of sin in our lives. It's a tyrant. And also freedom from being self-centered. I make a terrible God, right? <laughs> I mean, if, if I'm at the center of my own life, I only proved that one of two things was going to happen. I was either going to end up in prison or I would be dead. I was a rock and roll musician, you guys. With Jesus, complete turnaround, right? I commit my life to him and he redeemed the whole thing. I could not do that by myself. I couldn't do it on my own. The Spirit of God gives us wisdom and life and points our hearts in the right direction. The more we collectively embrace God's promises as true, the more we're going to be the kind of people that look like the churches in the New Testament that will foster and develop disciples who are wholly committed to serving God. There's a lot of that going on now. I mean, Aaron came from this fellowship, so it's not like it never happens here. It does. There's so much that God is doing at Sunnybrook Christian Church. And I want to acknowledge that. We have, listen, we have wealthy people that delight in generosity and they are generous beyond what you could possibly imagine, right? So there's so much good going on here. There's so much generosity among us. But God is always calling us to more, always calling us to let go of those areas of our hearts that we're still clinging. Why? I mean, what he has for us is so much better than what we have for ourselves. That abundant life will be more and more fully realized as we learn to let go and let God have his way in our hearts. He's always calling us toward that. We'll be the kind of church that engages in worship and prayer and, I mean, God forbid, even fasting maybe, and being together and living in the light of the presence of God, much like the church in Acts 13 did, where they they fasted and prayed and the Holy Spirit called out Barnabas and Saul and sent them. Like, I love seeing people from our fellowship uh, being sent and supported and prayed for and in partnership, like we all have a role to play there. We'll look like the church in Philippians, uh, where in chapter four, Paul describes the partnership. And I'm I'm running out of time, so I'm not gonna read it. But there's two things here that are apparent. There, There was partnership in giving and receiving. And I think Jake and Aaron would say, you guys weren't just like shoveling money at us, right? There, there was a relational partnership, right? The, the, the mission committee is responsible for administering funds that we've set aside. But let me tell you, there is a heart on, among those people to care for those that we are supporting and to know them and to know what's happening, uh, to be involved. That's why we make short-term mission trips, or at least one of the reasons we go, is to go and see what people are doing, to encourage them and to develop an even greater heart for the work that they're doing. Uh, I went with, to Poland with nine other people. Jim was there, uh, their two oldest sons, Max was there with us, Andrea was there with us. Uh, Ryan Vincent went, college girl named Chloe Zollner. Uh, there were some among us who thought, you know, I could, I could move here and actually spend part of my life working in this place. And I've learned by going on these trips and having the missionaries uh, in the countries he visited tell me as we are about to leave how much it means for us to come. Presence is enormous, an enormous encouragement. And guess what, guys? In Poland, and we don't have time to talk about that trip, I was super encouraged because I saw in the people in Poland a love for their country and an ability to evangelize uh, their own people that when I look at my own life, I think somehow I've grown dull. You know, my heart for Stillwater has grown a little bit dull. I was really inspired and reinvigorated to want to reach out and win the lost. So... God is good. He's at work in this place. Be encouraged by that. We don't all have to go to Ethiopia. We don't all have to go to Poland. We don't all have to go on short-term mission trips. 
that here's what God does require of us, to be ready to do what he has asked us and to go where he would send us when he calls. That we should have in common. Just want to speak a blessing over you before we go. Appreciate your attention. It's a, it's a joy to get to do this. I don't preach often. For those that are visiting, I meant to introduce myself. My name is Steve. I'm the, typically leading the, the singing here. Uh, I'm responsible for the worship and creative arts. Uh, a lot of our, uh, well, Jim is in the Dominican. He's our lead minister, does most of the teaching. We've got a lot of great teachers on staff. You got me today. Sorry about you. Uh, so let me just say this. May you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Learn to set your affections on Jesus and his kingdom. May your hearts long for his coming and rest in his promises. And may you be set free to love God and his people with your whole heart for the joy that he'll give us. Amen? Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great day.